0: Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Women won the right to vote while Canada was in the middle of the First World War. It was the climax of a hard-fought battle that had lasted for at least 40 years. Some women in Canada had voted in elections before, but these were rare exceptions. Manitoba was the first province to allow women the right of suffrage in 1916, and women across Canada voted in the general election of 1917, but then again, not all women. In order to be allowed to vote, a relation had to be enlisted in the war effort. The women's suffrage movement in Canada has a particular history, and to talk about it, I've invited Professor Tara Brookfield, an associate professor of history at Wilfrid Laurier University, to talk about it. She's the author of Our Voices Must Be Heard, Women and the Vote in Ontario, published by the University of British Columbia Press. This book is part of a very impressive seven-volume series led by Veronica strong Boag. Professor Brookfield, welcome to the mic.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Let's start with a more general question before we focus on your book and on Ontario. Canada's suffragette movement, as it was called in some places, did not have a lot of Emmeline Pankhurst to it. How would you describe its style?
1: I think if I only had one word to use, I would describe it as persistent. For the most part, the movement across Canada, not just Ontario, very much was working within the establishment. They weren't trying to remake Parliament or Canada's political system. They just wanted to be a part of it. So they took the same process of petitions and meetings rather than try to, as Pankhurst did, try to really break up the establishment.
0: No hunger strikes.
1: No hunger no strikes. No assaults. <laughs> There was a few in Ontario who who thought about taking a much more radical approach, but for the most part, it was it was very quiet, moderate, polite.
0: Very Canadian.
1: <laughs> I think they were patient. Um, and
0: persistent, you say. But
1: also stubborn and increasingly annoyed at the rejection.
0: There were two real pioneers in Ontario, uh, Marianne Shad and Dr. Emily Stowe, two names that we've unfortunately pretty well forgotten. What were their stories?
1: Well, I think... Maybe not forgotten in some circles. I think if you study uh, black women's history or black history in Canada, you know Marianne Shad Carey very well. And if you know medical history or women's history, Dr. Emily Stowe would be hopefully still familiar. Um, but Shad isn't actually too much part of the suffrage history. She uh, coming, She's an American? That's right. Coming mm-hmm. as, a, as an African-American, she migrated to Canada West looking for a new start, hoping for a new life that would probably... Be more opportunities. And she was involved with, I guess I should say, both both Stowe and Shad came from a Quaker background in which they valued equality between men and women and education for women. So both were sort of starting their lives in Canada West with a, a strong sense of education. They both became teachers, and both of them had um, interest to explore lives beyond what women were traditionally able to do. And in Chad's case, she turned to publishing as the outlet for her main interest.
0: She was in Canada in the 1850s. She went back to the States um, in the late 1850s, as I recall.
1: She went back to the States um, at the time of the Civil War.
0: Civil War. But she had made her mark in, in in advocating that women in Canada should have the right to vote.
1: Well, her main her main goal was to actually have African-American men the right to vote in the United States and her provincial Freeman newspaper, that was frequently the topic of editorials. But throughout that, you could always see it was sort of, and the women too. And I think referring to, to all women, but to make sure that black women weren't left out of the equation that was sort of the topic of main discourse in the United States.
0: Dr. Emily Stowe, what's her story?
1: So she's someone like... Uh Marianne Shad, who was a started off as a one-room school teacher and was always trying to advance higher education, but was having doors sort of slammed in her face. There was no universities at the time open to women. And like Marianne, she was sort of active 1840s, 1850s as a young woman. And the only way she could get extra education was to go to normal school to become trained as a teacher. But her passion was medicine, and she always wanted to be a doctor. Her mother came from a background of healing. And she ended up going to the United States to seek her education because there's no medical schools open to Canada and came back to Canada um, at the time the Confederation opened up a medical practice in Toronto. I think her whole medical education Journey is a really interesting one because she did so as a married mother of three children. Remarkably
0: modern. (laughs) (laughs) A very
1: bold decision. And she did so when her husband was quite ill. And I I really like to know what was going on in her head to make that decision to leave her country, to leave her family. Her family supported her. Her sister stepped in to take care of the household. And her husband later retrained as a dentist and had a joint practice with her.
0: But she's in Toronto in the 1870s and she starts the literary... Guild, was it
1: That's right. The Toronto Women's Literary Club, right, and which sounds like a book club, but it was really an education society for women to get together and and continue learning.
0: And she advocates suffrage at that point.
1: Well, not initially. No, they. It was never the forefront of the organization because that would have been a quite a radical move to have. But I think what she wanted, it was always equal rights was very important to her. So having women gather in her home and talking and studying and eventually trying to scope out what other women were thinking things like her. And then they renamed uh, themselves in 1883 the Dominion Women's Enfranchisement Association. So it took it took about seven years to be able to come out and have that be the public front of the organization.
0: That actually prompts me to ask the question. What did these suffragists, so women suffragists, champions of women's suffrage, advocate? Were they just single-issue advocates, or did they think in broader policy terms, or in broader political or cultural terms?
1: Well, I think Stowe herself saw the vote would open the door to everything else. Mm-hmm. That, For example, one of the causes very popular at the time was the temperance cause, in which many women were active and in, involved in.
0: Temperance, again, to explain to our listeners, is the anti-alcohol. It's the the, the idea of... of, of ending the, the license to
1: drink. Exactly, which for women to take this on, they were going to be challenging the liquor trade, the tavern trade, and sort of the, the establishment of drinking as a, as a pastime. And it was
0: a problem in this country, wasn't it?
1: Well, for <laughs> women saw it as a domestic, an issue of domestic violence mm-hmm. and in terms of the connection between alcohol and family troubles. And so it was really a, a crusade in their minds to have a, a safer family environment. And I know that comes with its own, you know, ideology that we don't probably have time to get into. But for women who weren't necessarily interested in equal rights and everything else that the vote came to, many temperance workers eventually signed on to the suffrage cause because they thought they weren't getting anywhere without the vote. And so if they had the vote, then they could pursue their other passion, for example, such as temperance.
0: You said at the outset that these women were persistent because success did not come. I mean, these women had a hard time.
1: Absolutely. Stowe's Toronto Literary Club started in 1876, and women didn't get the vote in Ontario until 1917. Stowe herself died in 1903, so she unfortunately did not live to see that victory. And it was sort of four decades of starts and stops and some minor successes and a lot of rejection.
0: The provinces were, it's important to remind our listeners, the provinces were in charge of determining who would vote. Why, Why, I mean, how did that come about?
1: I think because the earlier, I think, colonial establishments were sort of colony-based and each had their own criteria for establishing one vote. Property would have been in a common one, British subject, age 21. And I think then once Confederation happened, they they kept the unique colonial, mm-hmm. um, the individual colonies right. practices. And that, as, as it moved forward and in Ontario, or I guess it would have been Canada West at the time, there was initially no regulation about women not voting until the Reform Party came in in 1848 and actually inserted that you no women were able to vote. Really? hmm 1848?
0: 1848.
1: 1848. And what happened to that? Well, that stayed in power until 1917.
0: Okay, okay.
1: And so by the time Confederation happened, all the provinces had some type of, of regulation similar to that. Mm-hmm. I think one thing we should note, though, one group who were always controlled, though, by the, the federal government would have been Indigenous people.
0: Right. And they did not have the right to vote.
1: Correct. Indigenous people with status.
0: Right. Right. So if you didn't have status, you could vote.
1: Right. And there I mean, the federal government's goal was that you were supposed to want to give up status to become a citizen. Right, right.
0: Um, let's talk about, again, this, this, this need for persistence in the face of obstacles. What were the obstacles that stood in the way of the women who advocated suffrage? And the women and the men, let's say it. Uh, what stood in the way? What made it so difficult?
1: I think one, why, for example, Ontario was, although Ontario was the first suffrage movement organized. It was not the first to receive the vote. And I think from, I guess, Upper Canada to Canada West to Ontario had this conservative background. Mm-hmm. It was the heart of the empire, so to speak, at least compare it, for example, to Quebec. And I think it was harder for them to break tradition. And the idea at the time was that you only needed one vote per household and that the husband as head of the household would be the best person to determine that. Why I think they had better success on the prairies is that it was a bit more of a fringe part of Canada with less established status quo and that the the political movements there were able to have quicker success. But independent of, of the Ontario situation, I think all the suffragists across the country were up against a very traditional mindset that politics were for men.
0: Dominated by men. And the men setting the rules. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And so the, the intellectuals at the time who were writing into newspapers and creating pamphlets saying that this was inappropriate for women, they really created a, this worst case scenario, apocalyptic ideas about what would happen if women would have the vote. They would say, for example, well, the family would fall apart because women would be neglecting their, their domestic duties. And if we think about... you know, Voting takes so
0: much time. <laughs> it does,
1: it does. Um, but they they, they foresaw that this wouldn't create neglect, or they thought, well, what if the husband and wife voted differently, then the family might potentially be at conflict. And if they voted the same, what was the point of doubling everyone's votes? And they looked historically and said women didn't have, you know, uh, with the exception of a few queens, women had never had any experience and they weren't educated, so they would be problematic voters. They felt, for example, in Protestant Ontario in particular, that the Catholic could reach in and corrupt their minds. And there was all these sort of um, prophecies given out to create fear about what would happen if if status quo changed.
0: Do we have any evidence of what the women thought? I mean, I'm asking a a kind of a documentation kind of Champlain Society-esque kind of question. I mean, we really don't know what women generally thought, do we? Or do we what's your sense? did I mean, wh- you mean just ordinary women yes, ordinary women. was there a sense that women generally supported the idea of women's suffrage or
1: well, what the premiers would always throw back when Stowe would bring a delegation of, of women to to meet would be that well we know there's a small group of women who are interested in this, but they said for the most part that most women are not interested and that we can't give something that the majority don't want. So I tried to find, well, what did ordinary people want? And I know from looking at diaries and letters that women were interested in politics. If we look back, for example, to the time of the rebellion, we know women were supporting both sides of the rebellion and commenting on events. We know that uh, women were interested in causes such as abolition or temperance, so we know they were interested in change. What I had to go to, though, is once um, in 1885, spinsters and widows were able to get the municipal vote if they were property owners so i thought well who showed up at elections and there was voter turnout um so we know that this was in toronto oh it would mean across 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 the province across in 1885 province. Okay. women received if you had a if you owned a certain amount of property mm-hmm. if you were unmarried you were able to get the vote and so i looked at toronto in the first municipal election toronto had and the, there was a temperance candidate running in that particular election. So that brought out, a woman. No, no, no excuse a man, me, a no. Man. Okay. But he was supporting temperance, so he was courting the new women voters. And then I also looked at I, I live in Paris, Ontario, which was a mill town in in the 1890s, and I found their early voting list to see who had who had registered for the vote, and a number. I can't remember the exact percentage right now, but there was a significant representation of women, including many women who had ties to the mill. So it wasn't just the upper elite women, but women who had amassed enough savings to purchase a property or had um, inherited a property and were seeking to represent themselves.
0: So ideas are percolating and practices are changing. Uh, Obstacles are very, very, very slowly being eroded. And yet things do change. There seems to be... More willingness to entertain the idea of women voting after the twentieth century nineteen ten nineteen eleven, what what do you think uh, what do you think changed in the environment that would finally allow women to vote? Was it just the
1: war? That is the big what if question. Mm-hmm. I think. In the early 20th century leading up to the war, we see more and more suffrage clubs forming across the province in small oh, towns, we do. larger okay. areas. Oh, yeah. So, for example, in in, the, in Stowe's days, it was very centred in Toronto and people had to travel into Toronto for conferences and meetings. And, you know, you could be living somewhere where, where you might feel you're the only suffragette in your community. But by the early 20th century, it was a little bit more common to have people be vocal. And, and, and I think, as you mentioned before, this included men. There was many male allies to the movement in all different backgrounds. Uh, so it was gaining momentum, but the war in both ways stunted the movement. And then because when war was declared in 1914, the suffrage groups had to decide, do we put aside our activism to support the war effort? Or if the war is supposed to be about democracy, should we continue our cause? And that actually split the, um, many suffrage groups across Canada, what should they do? And some put everything on hold and threw themselves into the war effort, and others decided to try and, you know, have a suffrage event, but they would raise money, for example, for the, uh, a war-related cause. Right. How was
0: Emmeline Pankhurst seen in Canada? Did, did, did your research pick that up?
1: Oh, yes. She was a object of fascination, yes. at the very least. In the Ontario context, she visited several suffrage clubs. and She did Canadian she came... tours. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, well, she, she visited Quebec and Ontario and out west at, at different points, raising money for her cause back home and trying to incite a much more radical movement. Looking at her correspondence, she thought like Canada was ripe for oh, really? something. She called it the oldest dominion yet to have the vote because New Zealand and Australia had given women's right, the right to vote at the end of the 19th century. And she really wanted to stir something up. So she came, for example, to Massey Hall in, in the early um, 20th century and received, you know, you know, standing room only. People, I think, wanted to see her just out of curiosity. This is someone who had been arrested multiple times by then, had gone on hunger strikes.
0: I mean, she's a political superstar.
1: Absolutely. So I think she was just a celebrity. The yeah. interest was sort of one of celebrity. Yeah. But amongst the suffragists, they were cautious right. because they weren't quite sure would the, if they were to act in the same way, what benefit would that bring? For example, they loved that she was raising the profile of suffrage. They, there was many people who admired her individually. But others felt she's acting like a criminal. She wouldn't even have the right to vote.
0: She was being jailed.
1: Exactly. So what-, what
0: Brutally wrote... jailed. I mean, it was oh, terrible. I mean, terrible solitary confinement and beatings and forced feedings and, oh, horrible things.
1: She wasn't being respected as a political prisoner. No, certainly and... not. No. So there's sympathy. And I think most suffragists at least thought, for example, like the brutality that the police were showing was too much. But they also felt that she was too much or some of her supporters were too violent, too aggressive, that would not win the appeal in Canada. So while there was some interest, for example, Flora Macdonald denison a suffragist active in Toronto, was uh, had signed a membership card with Pancras Group and hosted Pancras on several occasions. She was um, getting crit- criticism for um, vocally supporting her amongst her own followers and in the press as well.
0: Does Denison constitute the new leadership for, suffrage in, for women's suffrage in Canada?
1: Yes and no in one way she she was a great admirer of Stowe and took over the suffrage organization after Stowe's daughter stepped down and she was because I think she was also one of the women who had who worked for a living so she would she was friends with all the, for example the other doctors in the association but Dennison herself came from a dressmaking background an entrepreneur a more someone who worked with her hands, a craftswoman and that set her apart from both the professional women like the doctors but also then, a lot of the women who never worked and who did a lot more volunteering.
0: She was more effective in the end. you think? Benison? She was.
1: A, um, what would be the best way to describe her? She was a polarizing figure because of her support for Pankhurst very mm. vocally, and mm. because of her own background. She, I've, I found, for example, in her, in her papers, some hate mail, anonymous hate mail, sort of saying you're not a good woman. Leave the suffrage movement to better women. And there was a direct campaign. So actually by the time the war just after the war started, she resigned because she was deemed too controversial to lead the Toronto movement.
0: Wow. It's again some woman I mean, outside the circles of those people who who study um, the suffrage movement, not very well known, is she?
1: No. She no. deserves
0: to be better known.
1: No, I think she is a she's a fascinating history. Someone who was divorced, someone who was believing in sort of free love and a, a bunch of other things Do we have a biography ideas. of this? But we don't. We don't. She might has be, might um, be a project for you. Potentially, she had a column in this the one of the Toronto papers. Mm-hmm. But we don't have much of her writing beyond the column, so I'm not sure. There's been some great articles about her. Yes, but I don't know if there'd be enough to put together a volume.
0: The war happens. Uh, the provinces are slowly changing their their statutes. Manitoba, as I said at the outset, uh, gives the right to vote to women in 1916. The other provinces will slowly follow suit. Uh, the government of Canada gives the right um, to vote to women in 1917 and everybody across Canada, uh, all the women, again, not everybody, the women who have a relation uh, fighting in the war uh, are allowed to vote. Those women who did not have a relation um, enrolled in the armed forces were not allowed to vote. Um, Is it the war in the end that makes the difference? I think so. It was for political purposes?
1: Well, I think it was frustrating for women who had been fighting for this for so long yes. that the war was the turning point because for some, it awoke people's eyes that, Oh, women could contribute civically, that mm-hmm. they weren't just, do you know, responsible in the domestic fear, that they saw women taking over men's work in factories, contributing in the voluntary effort, women nursing on the, on the front lines of the war. They thought, I think it was, um, it was a way for people who had always said no to say, actually women are, we really need them in this total war sort of aspect. Uh, and this was something that was bittersweet for many suffragists who felt like they had been contributing to the development of the province from the early days and <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> had been involved in many different sectors. Uh, on the other hand, they weren't, definitely, they weren't going to say no.
0: You think the war made a difference in the sense that had the war not happened, do you think that the women would have won the right to vote roughly at the same time? Or do you think that the war really did provoke the change?
1: I think the war gave a particular conservative mindset, a way to recognize women for- their their contributions, in a way that didn't say that you were equal to men, or the way that said that we value you as political actors, but we see you having a purpose in our society, and we want it to recognize your sacrifices in the, in the war.
0: So, if I read you correctly, if it had not been for the war, we'd have waited a lot longer. Hard to say, of course. It's this hard is a to... this is a one. Yeah, what...
1: because at the same, so in 1914, there was also, for example, the first anti-suffrage club organized in Toronto, oh. and there was many women who were organizing throughout the time against the suffrage cause. And so I would say, yeah, if I could put a guess, maybe by the 20s at some point, there would have been a change. But I think the war was in some ways changed the question about women's responsibilities to their nation.
0: Now, tell me about you. Um, You've written an earlier book entitled Cold War Comforts, Canadian Women, Child Safety, and Global Insecurity, published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press. How do those two books uh, relate to each other in your mind? How did that first book lead to this book?
1: Well, in some ways, it's a bit of a turn chronologically, because mm-hmm. I consider myself a more modern historian, and I really love the Cold War period. But the editor of this series, uh, Nikki Strongbow, had asked me, would I be interested in, in returning to an earlier time period? And I had done some work in my MA about the Quebec suffrage movement. And I think what I see is a continuity between this earlier period of, of women rallying around a cause and the Cold War period in which I looked at was how women responded to the threat of nuclear war or um, just concerns about different Cold War conflicts, particularly uniting around the idea of child safety. So for looking at, for example, the activities of the Voice of Women, the Voix de Femme, uh, an organization that was very much dedicated to bringing peace and anti-disarmament and anti-Vietnam War, that these were women who felt that their voices weren't being recognized within The broader political movement and felt that they had something to say, and so they organized grassroots organizations. So similar to the suffragists, they they had sort of they saw themselves their views not being represented and felt that they needed to organize. It's
0: very much a story about women thinking large about policy issues and political issues in in a much wider frame than simply a question of voting.
1: Absolutely. And I think what gets maybe lost sometimes when you, when I, even when I teach the suffrage story is that things didn't change overnight when women received the vote. It's not as if, I mean, some of the women hoped the revolution would take place and there would be women's parties and they would clean up politics and it would be a dramatic revolution. But most women side it with the existing political parties and things continued.
0: Well, you're prompting me then to what has to be one of my last questions. I mean, I can't resist uh, wanting to hear your views about women a hundred years later. It's been a hundred years now of women's vote. Uh, What needs to be done uh, in terms of women in politics, do you think?
1: Well, as you know as a historian I would prefer you know to ask me this question 20 years from now to see for example the landscape of the things in the news right now to Oh, see I realize exactly. I'm pushing you
0: along what do you I mean hundred years has 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 the progress do you think has the progress been sufficient do you think that uh, the the advocates of the women's suffrage at the during the war would have been would be happy today if they came back what it was extremely
1: to be slow progress between women receiving the vote and having more than one or two women. As candidates, there were women who stepped forward, and they had a bit of success in in sort of the labor or the farmer um, parties, but the liberals and conservatives were very reluctant to take on women candidates.
0: The first women in cabinet would be Ellen Fairclough in, That's right. uh, in the 1950s or even 60s. I can't remember when John Diefenbaker named her. That's right. We're talking 30 years later. It's slow. So it was extremely slow, yes. but
1: time... You know, just because a law gets put into place doesn't mean that people's minds are going to change, or that people you, you might envision yourself as a voter, but you certainly don't envision yourself as a candidate or a women politician. In,
0: women in federal parliament and the government of can, in, in the Canadian parliament only constitute 27 or 28 percent of uh, of members. We've made slow progress. It's
1: been very slow. So I think the suffragists would be disappointed at slow progress. On the other hand, I think we have to know that women have continued to organize outside of politics and that shouldn't be we shouldn't privilege the idea of, of being um, in the formal political scene that women in the NGO sector or in other sectors have been very active in getting their causes and I also think it's artificial to think of women as a group although some of the suffragists really thought women would continue to organize and vote the same way. We know women are human beings who have diverse ideas different understandings and so um, there's been many women it's not, it's not as if there's a unified or homogeneous group and certainly, we know class and race and ethnicity, and there's there's all different things that bring about different intersections of identity that that inform politics. And I think, you know, in some ways, having an idea with with, for example, with Prime Minister Trudeau's initial idea to have a you know a gender parity yes. cabinet, that yes. that it is certainly. I think, a type of innovation that might encourage. I but think then, it may persist. I think but he's set a new
0: standard. But then Hopefully. we
1: see sort of the latest sort of yeah. cabinet shuffles and, and yeah. an idea that th- you're not listening necessarily to to all of your players, and whether that's just partisan politics and politics in general, or is it uh, putting up a front of feminism that's not actually being enacted behind the scenes. Time will tell.
0: <laughs> time will tell. It's the, always the last word of historians, isn't exactly. it? Thank you very much for sharing your ideas with me.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me. My
0: pleasure. I was speaking with Tara Brookfield, Associate Professor of History at Wilfrid Laurier University. She's the author of Our Voices Must Be Heard, Women and the Vote in Ontario, published by the University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on April 15, 2019, and it was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.